Let me invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah (coughs) as we continue our tour through Nehemiah. We're on Nehemiah chapter 4. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Now when Sanblat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from before your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdenites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them. Day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread And we are separated on the wall far from one another. 
in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn till the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us, took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would now be open and that it would be applied to our hearts. Help us to live in light of the truth and grace that you here give. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I asked my mother this evening if she would be willing to don a pair of army boots and wear them this evening, that it would help with the dramatic title uh, that we have together. But uh, she declined and said she was a bit more fashion conscious than that. Last week, we toured Jerusalem with Nehemiah, observing the rebuilding of the wall segment by segment. From the sheep gate and fish gate and dung gate, everybody helped build. Oh, there were a few holdouts, the infamous nobles of Dakota, who did not lend a hand. But scores of others from inside and outside Jerusalem took part in the construction of God. This evening, we returned to the building site, but only after hearing the taunts of God's enemies, the wicked old Sanblat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, have no love for the work of God. Instead, they whip up the Samaritans against the people of God. They stir them up to the point of attack, but the good hand of our God intervenes to thwart them. And in our passage this evening, we all see together that the faithful are attacked, but not stopped by evil. Attacked, but not stopped. The first attack that came in the text before us was verbal. Evil, never forget, evil always slanders the faithful. Evil responds to kingdom work in anger, and we see that in verse 1. Now when Sanblat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He attacked the Jews not with bullets, but with a barrage of words. And you know, slander and ridicule are the oldest tricks in the book. Just turn back to Genesis chapter 3, read the first three verses, and you will see that slander and ridicule are at the root of our fallen condition. But Sandblatt was unwise. He let his temper get the better part of him. Rage and ridicule oftentimes are very poor partners. Ridicule, ridicule is always more powerful when said with a straight and determined face. And Sandblatt failed so to do. Evil responds to kingdom work not only in anger, but also in ridicule, according to verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? 
He was surrounded by his Samaritan reporters. He was appealing, actually, most pointedly to the wealthy and powerful segment among them. He attacked the Jewish workers, calling them feeble, mocking what they were doing, scorning the idea that they could ever afford and accomplish sacrifices and finish the wall in a day. Oh, the stones themselves, he claimed, cried out against them. You see, this Sanballat fellow, he's sort of a cross, if you can imagine in your mind, between John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. He's a, a mocker, a fun maker. He is someone who's irreverent in his comments and his analysis. Oh, this wagging of the tongue that he does is not good for the souls of himself or anyone else. He does not aid his Samaritan friends and army in becoming more like God, or neither does he encourage the people of God in their work. Rather, he ridicules them and seeks to tear them down. And in verse 3, we see that evil responds to kingdom work with its own blasphemous authority. Verse 3 says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. This is an animal about the size of a little dog or maybe a little larger. And just walking on the top of their construction, it would all come tumbling down, he says. Who is Tobiah the Ammonite? Well, he's the proverbial expert from out of town with a briefcase. He's there as the one who who really can give the finest of analyses. He adds his commentary, his authority, uh, adds to Sandblatt's derision of the Jewish work. Oh, how evil always loves an expert on its side. You hear it all the time. I remember growing up as a child and going to church and And as the the liberal drift of the old southern church was beginning to accelerate, the favorite phrase in our Sunday school material was, experts say. And it seemed that always those experts were from the far left side, and they always had the opinion the text was not written by the human author, so they're declared. And and the texts were always very late, and you, you couldn't trust what they said because they were this mixture of different things, some true, some false. And you needed their expert hand and eye to even begin to read and understand the Bible. One of the happiest days, according to my father, was the day when I said to him, you don't need those books. Here, let me give you a commentary. It was a one-volume Matthew Henry, and uh, that held him in good stead. Oh, evil responds to kingdom work with its own independent and derisive authority. But the faithful, they remember to appeal to the Lord. Uh, Verse 4 is an example of this in the first half. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. In this statement, the author reminds us that our appeal to the Lord as the faithful must be based on His great covenant of grace. Oh, our God is the pivot and turning point of this chapter. It is the point of contrast between those who would be the obstrepers and the mockers of the truth of God and those that seek humbly to be faithful 
seek after the face of their Lord. The remnant in Israel was doing the will of God, doing kingdom work. And on that basis, they appealed to the Lord for blessing and for protection. And you know, you need to get this firmly in your mind. It's important in your Christian life. There you are getting ready to ask God for things. To ask the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God for what you need. Where do you find a toehold with God so that He might be convinced to grant you what you wish? We go appealing, not for our own pleasure and our own ease, not for our own taste and our own comfort. Rather, we go appealing in the name of God's own covenant of grace. We ask God for things that are in the name of His Son and to His glory. And that is what we set our hearts upon in prayer. Do you remember the illustration of it that we have in Genesis? Do you remember how to wrestle with the angel of the Lord like Jacob? There's only one grip that works with the angel of the Lord when you're wrestling with him, and that's the covenant grip, the grip of the covenant of grace. I will not let you go till you bless me. The faithful says to her God in prayer, All other bases, all other appeals are weak and foolish and fail. Oh, remember to appeal to God and to do it, believer, on the basis of His covenant of grace. And covenant appeal here in this passage also includes another feature that is like dealing with nitroglycerin, but it's an important part of mature Christian living The appeal to the faithful also includes imprecation or imprecation. Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." Here the appeal of the faithful is not easy and sweet and light. The prayers here reflect the reality of rough and tumble in a life, Christian life in a fallen world. The enemy was easy to see and his claim of pomp and circumstance were unmistakable. And in the face of evil, boasting, and power, the people of God here lift up in precatory prayer and ask God to be the mighty warrior on their behalf. Imprecatory prayer is not bad, even though it can sound hard and can be difficult to do with proper gospel emphasis. You see, we live in a time in which How we pray and how we work and how we think is to be modified by the fullness of the gospel at this time in redemptive history. We speak strong words, repeating the prayers of David and Nehemiah and others in the scriptures where they call for God to judge, where they call for God to act and to protect 
and to push back chaos and to bring good in the lives of His people. That's not just icing spread over the top of so much evil. It's icing after the Lord blasts away and does His mighty work in the removing, removing of evil from the table. Oh, we pray, yes, for their conversion. And we also recognize that we pray in this day and time, not yet knowing whether we are praying for one who may yet turn out to be a Saul of Tarsus, changed by the grace of Almighty God into a Paul, the Apostle. Oh, our, in all of our praying, imprecatory parts included, we pray not with hate, but rather in gospel love, remembering the universal command Jesus has given to us to love our enemies. And to love them is to ask God not to prosper them in their evil, but to thwart them. Not to let them go on in their wicked and marauding ways, but rather to swing injustice against them and for the, and for the elect for that to be transformed into chastisement that brings repentance and schools them to Christ that they might confess His name and find salvation in Him. All the way through in our praying, though, in a fallen world, we are not those who are naive and blind, but rather we keep sober spiritual assessment of the situation and of the players that are at hand and look for God to act. Oh, the appeal that we make to God as the faithful is on the basis of the covenant of grace and even includes a precatory dimension. But it produces, by the grace of God, amazing results. Verse 6 tells us simply, And so we built, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind for the work. We built. That's the amazing theme of this entire book. If we borrow a phrase from old Andrew Carnegie, their heart was in the work. We will see it clearly. God moved them to work and labor to His glory, to labor in prayer and to labor in building and with a sword in their hand. There was a second attack. It was not verbal. It was to be real. And that attack was thwarted. Evil again threatened the faithful. Verse 7 lets us know that evil grows because we don't just have Sanballat and Tobiah mentioned, but now the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdenites. We have a whole company of opposition which has gathered. My, how the opposition to the Lord has increased. The little remnant of Israel was now surrounded on all sides by hostile forces. This is something we know in our own day. We live in a day of a rising tide of opposition to righteousness. <coughs> Excuse me. But we take heart in the fact when we read Nehemiah that we are not the first to face them. Those that would rise up and seek to throw down the people of God and to crush their children. Rather, we know that evil grows. <coughs> 
And so we face it with the confidence that only the Lord can give. You see, evil not only flourishes at times, but it also understands. Verse 7 says, They heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed. And they were very angry. This whole company of opposition, not only had they talked, not only had they threatened, but they also heard and they grew in their understanding about how God was blessing in that place. Don't assume that evil is always stupid and silly. Oftentimes evil is. But sometimes it's cunning and clever. Evil can be eager to know what's happening in the kingdom of God. And evil can scheme, as we see in verse 8. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. But the faithful again in Nehemiah respond in faith. They prayed to their God in verse 9. And because of the threats, they set up a guard day and night. Do you see those two things? Praying to God for protection and then making sure they place a, a guard, not just sometimes, but around the clock, uh, not, just, uh, not just those there to kind of watch and then raise the alarm. These are men with swords. These are men ready to fight. These are true guards ready to sacrifice their lives. True faith. Never forgets works. Never forgets means. Because God has established means in this world. And He uses them to His glory. True faith is practical. True faith is prepared to sacrifice for good. True faith, if I can say this in the old-fashioned way, true faith is a Boy Scout. Always thinking. Always working. Always prepared. And true faith suffers. Verses 10 and 11 speak to us of the suffering that the people of God went through, the added burden, and how they groaned under uh, the burden of it all. It's too much. We'll not be able to do it. And so we learn that sometimes the road is long and that it's hard for us to take the next step. And these are not just imagined burdens but real threats that sought to undo their lives. But true faith also persevered. And in verses 12 to 14, we see that they cry out to those outside of Jerusalem, those who were even more vulnerable because they were not together and not behind the wall. And they watched and listened and spied, so helping to protect the work. And they prepared for battle. Uh, Morale was low, As the threat increased, and so Nehemiah came and he rallied the troops. And you would think by reading Nehemiah chapter 4 that Nehemiah's name was actually Winston Churchill. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. And so it was driven into their heart and the morale was lifted by this means of eloquent speech and persuasion that God had given the leader, Nehemiah. And amazingly, the third attack never came. 
Evil was ultimately defeated by God himself. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. The Lord was the one who by the finger and powerful arm of his providence had broken their plans in pieces. God's people returned to kingdom work all the more. Uh, They began working on the wall again. And they kept up their guard, half holding weapons ready, the other half working. And then even sometimes one hand working and the other holding a weapon readily to fight and defend Jerusalem. Oh, but all the way through, their faith was strong in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so God's people kept up their guard, ready day and night, even ready to give up baths. No skinny dipping at all. Rather, they were always ready, always buckled, always prepared to fight. And so, like Jesus, the Messiah to come, the remnant rebuilding the wall, found themselves attacked and slandered. And the kingdom of God itself put in danger by their enemies. But the Lord and His kingdom aren't stopped by such opposition. They're not stopped by evil. But... Persevere through it all by the grace and good and sovereign plan of God that will never, never be overthrown. Take heart, my friends. Take heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus, on His covenant of grace, which is surely as heaven and earth, more surely than the earth beneath your feet and the sky above your head continues, rolls on according to the plan of God. No man, no man ultimately will resist him. He will have his way and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, we do ask that you might help us not to lose heart that we might keep building on the wall, that we might keep kingdom work at the center of our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.